massive car bomb exploded outside of a large federal building in downtown Oklahoma City, shattering that building, killing children, killing federal employees, military men, and civilians. The chaos in downtown Oklahoma City did indeed resemble Beirut after what police believed to be a 1,200-pound car bomb ripped through the nine-story federal building shortly after 9 o'clock this morning. If it seemed like war... It's like a garbage pile. It's, just, it's unbelievable. I found myself this morning looking back at things and thinking of things that I didn't really think about during the... During the thing, and, and tears still come to my eyes. Seemed like war. They are saying there's an eight-foot crater, and several, a uh, couple of cars at least, have been joined by the heat and the force of the explosion. In Lebanon, a spokesman for the Iranian-backed Hezbollah said, "We are only interested in liberating our land from the Israeli occupation. We have no relation with the explosion inside the United States." There you see the farmhouse right now. Uh, this is where two individuals, we believe two, maybe more, uh, were being sought. Seemed like war. That's a farmhouse said to be owned by two brothers with possible links to the bombing. They are identified as James Douglas Nichols and Terry Lynn Nichols. Law enforcement sources say those two men and McVeigh were expelled from a paramilitary group for being too radical. Officials are refusing to speculate on what motive any of these suspects might have. He told me earlier this evening, having to do with experiments in bomb-making and a passionate anger against the federal government for its actions against the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas two years back, is circumstantial but telling. One suspect, according to our sources, is in custody now. 27-year-old Tim McVeigh, the crew cut John Doe number one in the FBI sketch, had been stopped for speeding in this Mercury Marquee. 60 miles north of Oklahoma City, about 90 minutes after the bombing. Reno ended at a wider conspiracy. I remind everyone that John Doe number two remains at large. He should be considered armed and extremely dangerous. There is a strong likelihood that other persons are involved in this tragedy as well. Seemed like war. Hello, and welcome to the DeathCast. I am your host, best-selling author, Ian Totten. I'd like to thank you for joining me as we prepare to take our seventh look at the Oklahoma City bombings. Before we dive into this week's portion of the story, I have the normal show notes, which can be found in the episode description along with links. If you'd like to follow me on social media, just search for Ian Totten Author, Corpse Creek Publishing, or The Death Cast. You can find me on most social media platforms under one of those monikers. If you're interested in signing up for the show's mailing list, you can go to CorpseCreekPublishing.com, click on the sign up button. While there, please consider making a donation to the show. Buy me a cup of coffee or purchasing one of my novels. If you really can't get enough of what it is that I do, go to tinyurl.com backslash dcpatreon. For as little as $2 a month, you can become a Patreon member of this show. If I get enough Patreon membership signed up, I can opt out of the ads revenue programs that most of the 
podcast hosting sites have. And lastly, I know it's that time of year, money's tight with the economy and it being the holidays. If you can't afford to spare a few shekels, please consider going to wherever it is you get your favorite podcast, subscribing to the show, and leaving a five-star review. As always, I do read five-star reviews on air. If you don't like what I do, just keep moving along because I will read your five-star review as well as your name out live on the air before I rip you a new one. Just the way I roll. Alright, now that that is all out of the way, get yourself something to drink, find a nice comfy chair, kick back, relax. I've got my coffee, I've got my cigarettes. Let's go into the crypt. When we left off last week... We were discussing the various moves that Timothy McVeigh made in the years after leaving upstate New York, leading up to the actual planning and carrying out of the Oklahoma City bombing. We talked about how there were numerous individuals after the fact of the bombing who were seen as possible witnesses or suspects within the Oklahoma City bombing conspiracy, and how police and federal officials dismissed most of these individuals, eventually settling simply on Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols. And I mentioned briefly the ARA, that's the... Aryan Republican Army, and that is really going to be the focus of this week's show, is the ARA. And if you're curious as to why they are getting their own episode, it's known that McVeigh used the proceeds for bank robberies to help with the funding of the bombing. More than that, Nichols has said from prison that there were other individuals involved, and members of the ARA have even gone on the record from their own prison cells to state that they were involved in some way with the funding of the bombing. McVeigh said at various times, however, that He didn't just receive funding from these individuals. He actually participated in a number of their robberies. So, who and what was the Aryan Republican Army? Much like a number of the other organizations that McVeigh brushed up against during this period of time, the ARA really had their roots in the 1980s militia movement. All of the members of the ARA had very strong anti-government ideologies, and they also subscribed to the ideology of a coming race war, which would, quote-unquote, liberate the white race from the other races. They took inspiration from 
numerous different groups of the 1980s, such as the Order, the National Alliance, all the groups you've heard me mention throughout this particular series. They also, much like McVeigh, took inspiration from both the Ruby Ridge Massacre and Waco, Texas, although the ARA actually began at some point in 1992 when school friends Kevin Peter Langan and Richard Lee Guthrie Jr. decided that not only did the government need to go away and there needed to be a strictly white republic, but that they needed to help with this. There's a fairly decent docu-series called Gangland that came out in the early to mid-2000s, and one of their episodes dealt specifically with the ARA. The problem with that episode, however, is that they only cover Langan and Guthrie. They really don't touch on the fact that there were at least six other active members of the ARA. It has been said that the group was leaderless, although if you watch any of the videos that Langan and Guthrie made, it is very apparent that the two of them are in fact the leaders of this organization. And during these videos that they made, which were found after the fact, they try to make it seem as though the organization is much larger than it actually was. There were, like I said, about six known members, along with various associates. And at first, the federal authorities didn't realize that it was a white supremacist group. All they knew was that starting in 92-93, banks within the Midwest began to get robbed by masked gunmen who carried out the robberies with some form of military precision. But more than that, it was noted that these robberies, which at first were unable to be connected, were perpetrated by individuals wearing masks of former presidents, which is interesting if you've ever seen the movie Point Break, as the bank robbers in that film all wear masks of former presidents. Basically, they would go into these banks take control of them, and leave fake explosive devices. This was done as twofold. A, they felt banks within the Midwest had less than adequate security, but they also did left the devices there in order to divert the attention of law enforcement as their theory was the police will be too busy trying to disarm these bombs to give chase to them. And this worked to some degree. 
lot of the places that the ARA hit were small town banks. Unlike some serial bank robbery organizations, the ARA planned out their robberies well in advance. They did a lot of surveillance, that type of thing, in order to learn the habits of the guards, the people that are working there, and try and figure out the security system. So they would pull off these robberies and then the individuals responsible for it would kind of go their separate ways, with the exception of Langan and Guthrie, who again were childhood friends. They were the two that would make the videos and distribute the money to the various groups who they felt should receive this money. And just briefly, I'm going to touch on some other subjects. The way the white supremacist movements in the United States it works is not very dissimilar to organizations like the Cornbread Mafia, the Dixie Mafia, things of that nature. In you'll have a group of individuals in, you know, let's just say hypothetically Columbus, Ohio, who are pulling various crimes, and you'll also have another group over in, say, you know, Louisiana, who are pulling crimes. They know of one another. They may help one another on jobs at times or offer assistance or funding, but for the most part, they are separate entities from one another. That is how the white power movement in the United States is. Most of these individuals know of the organ other organizations that are out there. They may at times help one another. They have similar goals and ideology, but they really aren't, you know, an, one entire organization. It's not like the federal government could turn around and charge the entire white power movement, you know, on a RICO indictment where they can get them for, you know, operating as a criminal organization because each one of the organizations is separate from the other. So what Langan and Guthrie were doing is they were going and robbing these banks, taking their haul, keeping some of it for themselves to buy weaponry, and also giving some of the money to other organizations. Why is that important? Well, there is evidence that one of these groups that they were giving money to is the conspiracy that McVeigh had gotten himself involved with to bomb a federal government target within the United States. There are some people that have even gone so far as to say that Members of the ARA were actually actively involved in plotting of this bombing. And that is very possible, as Langan is known to have been an extremely intelligent and cunning individual. He was described by one associate of the ARA as coming across as a hillbilly until you got to know him at which point you realize this isn't just some backwoods hit. 
this guy really has his head a good head on his shoulders and is thinking through every single thing that we do. So, now we've got the ARA. They're robbing these banks. It's known that they robbed at least 22 banks throughout the Midwest United States. Besides Langan and Guthrie, the other known members of the ARA were Michael William Brescia, Mark William Thomas, Sean Kenny, Kevin McCarthy, and Scott Steddeford. Very quickly, we're going to go cover the individuals involved in this organization. Richard Lee Guthrie was born in Wheaton, Maryland, and ended up getting thrown out of the United States Navy at some point in the early 1980s. Some sources say 82, others 83, after painting a swastika on the side of a ship and supposedly threatening his superiors. Like McVeigh, Guthrie traveled the gun show circuit. Although, unlike McVeigh, Guthrie was not just interested in making connections at these gun shows, he was actually passing out the Christian identity movement pamphlets and other information on that particular branch of the white power movement thought process. Peter Langan was born in 1958 in Saipan, which is in the South Pacific Islands. Interestingly, Langan's father was a, worked for the CIA, and he actually grew up in Vietnam because of this, at least until he was in middle adolescence. In 1974, Langan was sentenced to up to 20 years for robbing a man of $78 as well as fleeing police. After being released from prison, Langan ended up moving to Ohio in 1988. Some sources state that at this point Langan became a Mormon who was in a church that was associated with the Ku Klux Klan, although I haven't been able to find definitive proof of this. It's known that at some point in the late 1980s, early 1990s, Langan really got into the white power movement, which, as you will see when we get to the end of this particular tale, is kind of interesting. The ARA's activities are said to have been directly influenced by the film Point Break, which, as you'll remember, I already discussed the fact that they wore presidential masks and everybody had a nickname. This was in order to keep anyone from mentioning one of the other perpetrators' real names during a robbery. In addition to this, they kept a very strict and regimented time frame. They would go into the bank, as I said, they'd take it over, and then they would have somebody call out second-by-second second intervals up until the 90-second mark. 
at which point the robbers would leave the bank, get into their vehicles, and escape. Some different sources state that there's every idea that the robberies would have gone on indefinitely had one of the members of the ARA not been arrested in 1996. This statement is given as the FBI had no idea of the existence of these individuals. However, bank robberies are federal crimes. Anytime there's a bank robbery, you're going to get feds showing up on site. The fact that they were robbing the banks in such a similar fashion every single time with the masks, your jackets emblazoned with federal government agencies such as the FBI and the ATF, as well as leaving pipe bombs and grenades and other bombs which were left as decoys to get the law enforcement off their backs makes me believe that the federal government probably had an idea that this group was active, although up until 1996 they had no idea who this organization was nor who its members were. When this member or associate 96 ended up getting arrested, very quickly they turned over on their other members of the ARA. On January 15th of 1996, Guthrie became aware that he was going to be arrested and he went on the run, which led to a chase by the FBI, at which point I believe he was involved in a car accident and was taken into custody. Langan, on the other hand, was a little bit of a different story. Gotta understand, these guys had said throughout the entire time that they were involved with the ARA that they would never be taken alive. Langan actually was in the back of, it was either a van or a truck, and had a shootout with FBI agents on January 18th, 1996. Langan was pretty beaten up from this encounter. He was wounded. I believe he attempted to kill himself during it, was also roughed up by law enforcement, but in the end, he was taken into custody. Pretty quickly, Guthrie and Langdon ended up becoming witnesses for the prosecution, as did McCarthy and Mark William Thomas, who we're going to talk about more at length in just a moment. After being convicted, Langan, who went by the nickname Commander Pedro, was questioned about whether or not he had participated in or given any funding to Timothy McVeigh to bomb the Murrah building the previous year, which was 1995. His response was, most of my family, my siblings, work in federal buildings. The commander admits only to being an eccentric and, well, maybe a white separatist. And there may be some validity to that. It could be simply that 
Langan just lacked that certain something within himself to follow in the footsteps of his relatives, specifically his father, who, as already mentioned, was a CIA asset or operative. Further connecting the ARA to the Oklahoma City bombing is the fact that both Guthrie and Brescia lived in the Elum City, and the majority of individuals who were members of the ARA are also known to have visited the city during periods of time where it's been said that McVeigh was either in Elum or in contact with people from the city. But there's more of a connection to McVeigh than just that. On April 5th, 1995, a couple of weeks before the bombing, McVeigh is known to have made a phone call to Elm City, although no one who is known to have been there during that period of time has ever come forward or and stated that, yes, it was me, I'm the one who talked to him. More importantly, though, on April 8th of 1995, McVeigh and an individual who was said to have been Brescia were seen at a nightclub. They'd been seen at a nightclub the previous night with Brescia buying McVeigh drinks, and then two nights later, they were seen again at this nightclub. Further, numerous individuals have come forward and stated that Guthrie bore a striking resemblance to John Doe number 2, with a number of different people stating that after having seen Guthrie on the news in 1996, that that's the guy who I saw on the day of the bombing. As for Michael Brescia, multiple people have said that he also resembles one of the sketches of John Doe number 2, but they've also said that he is the person that McVeigh was seen in and around Oklahoma City and Elum, whose name they only knew as Mike. This is important information to getting a better grasp on the actual crime itself, because as you'll remember from the first episode, we talked about the fact that initially federal officials came out and said that they believed multiple individuals were involved. In fact, they went so far as to release sketches of individuals they called John Doe number 2. Now, these sketches didn't look anything alike, which, again, leads to the idea that there were more people in Oklahoma City on that day helping McVeigh. We also have witness testimony stating that they saw individuals in a pickup truck, one of whom was McVeigh just prior or after 
the bombing also have witnesses who saw two men get out of the rider truck and witnesses who saw men fleeing the Murrah building just before the bomb went off, sometimes stating they saw two individuals, at other times stating they saw three. We're going to really get into it maybe next episode, maybe this episode, just depends on how the time pans out. The fact that the FBI and other agencies have refused to release any of the footage taken from businesses that day from their cameras. So there's no way to either verify or, you know, state with certainty that McVeigh acted alone or that there were other people there. We only have the federal government giving us the official, nope, it was just McVeigh and Nichols. And that is a problem with this case because so many people have linked members of the ARA to McVeigh to the actions of the day of the bombing and to Elm City. The idea that only one person was involved when you have multiple individuals, and I'm not talking two or three, I'm talking dozens of witnesses who came forward with this information during the initial investigation, during the trials, and in years subsequent to that, and the government is just like, nope, this is what happened, that's all that happened. It's, it's mind-boggling that they are so closed-minded about it. Anyways, we're going to very quickly cover what happened to the various members of the ARA before we move on further into the story of McVeigh. While in prison, Guthrie was found hanging in his prison cell on July 12th of 1996. It would be very easy to say, okay, guy was a chicken shit, he didn't he did the crime, he didn't want to do the time. However, Guthrie was scheduled to testify in a case that had been dogging the federal government for a couple of years. On August 21st, 1995, a man by the name of Kenneth Michael Trentadu was found hanging in his cell at the Federal Transfer Center in Oklahoma City. This was during the investigation into the Oklahoma City bombing. Conspiracy theorists, get your hats on. We're going to go dive down this really quickly. Trinidad's family maintains that he was not suicidal. He had been arrested on June 10th of 1995 while crossing from Mexico into California, and he was found to have violated parole. After being transferred to Oklahoma, Trinidad called his brother Jesse, who described him as sounding chipper and upbeat in the phone call. At 3.02 a.m. on the morning of August 21st, 1995, 
Trinidou was found hanging from a noose he had made from his bed sheets, but here's where stuff gets odd. Trinidou had bruises on his body, his throat had been slashed, and prison officials came out and stated that he fell while trying to hang himself, after which he tried to cut his own throat with his toothpaste tube before succeeding in hanging himself a second time. According to the family, when they received Trinidou's body, it was covered with various wounds, cuts, and bruises, which led his family to believe that he had been beaten in prison. The day after Trinidou died, Kevin Rowland, who was the chief investigator of the Oklahoma State Medical Examiner's Office, filed a complaint against the FBI reporting irregularities in the handling of Trinidou's death as well as the subsequent investigation. According to this complaint, the medical examiner's office were not allowed into the cell after Trinidou's body had been discovered, and in fact, the cell had been cleaned out completely with a hose on by the afternoon of the 24th, which violated the st standards that w existed in Oklahoma, which required the medical examiner's office complete access to the cell prior to the body being removed so that they could investigate it. Further in this report, it was said that Trinidou's actual cause of death could not be determined as he had th at least three heavy blows to his head and that the condition of his body was inconsistent with an individual having committed suicide, leading to the conclusion that Trinidou had been tortured prior to being murdered the medical examiner, in fact, told the FBI agent who received the phone call about Trinidou's death, took notes on this phone call, stating that the medical examiner believed that Trinidou had been murdered and that his wounds were the result of torture. What took place after that is an inquiry was ordered with the information being quote-unquote treated as attorney work product mean that it was protected from any lawsuits or Freedom of Information Act requests. Now, Timothy McVeigh, upon learning of Trinidou's death, stated to his lawyers that he believed the FBI may have mistaken Trinidou for Richard Lee Guthrie Jr., who, if you'll recall, we were just discussing before we began speaking about Trinidou. So it was McVeigh's contention, as well as the contention of many other people, that the FBI, who were pissed off about the bombing, took out their frustrations on Trinidou in an effort to get information from him that he obviously did not have, 
And when it became apparent he was not going to give this information, they kept turning up the heat on him. He eventually died in custody, and they wrote it off as a suicide. Jump over to Guthrie. He's set to testify in a few days at a investigative trial regarding Trinidu's death, and he is found dead in his cell. It does not take a rocket scientist to put that particular idea together that some people believe that Guthrie was killed by the FBI in retaliation for his suspected participation in the Oklahoma City bombing and to keep any information that he may have told during his testimony from coming to light. There's also the train of thought, though, that Guthrie may have indeed participated in the Oklahoma City bombing and killed himself because he did not want to stand trial for participating in the bombing, as it's very likely that the federal prosecutors would seek a death penalty on him. The third idea on that is that the federal government knew that he had participated in it and killed him to keep him quiet about it because if it came out that he had participated in the bombing, it would completely negate the idea that only McVeigh and Nichols had participated in the bombing, therefore casting aspersions on the rest of the narrative that had been put out there by the federal government and the news media. For the rest of the members of the ARA, some sources state that Sean Kenny was able to join the army after the ARA was dissolved. Mark William Thomas told a reporter in January of 1997 that at least one member of their gang had been involved in the Oklahoma City bombing, heavily implicating that it may have been Guthrie. Lastly, we're going to wrap up talking about this just by discussing the turn of events involving Kenner, Kevin Peter Langan. Langan was known to be a very eccentric, some have even said overly dramatic individual. In fact, in the videos that the AR made that were meant to have been communiques with the federal government, he is seen wearing various masks and speaking dramatically while individuals goose step back and forth across the screen and showing off the money they have gotten from the robberies, telling absolutely awful jokes. Well, Langan eventually renounced all of his political ideologies. But more than that, in the mid-2000s, Langan decided that he was a transgender woman and actually began a fight with the federal government 
to not only be transferred from a male prison, but also to be allowed to have gender reassignment surgery. He was eventually transferred to this woman's penitentiary. I've seen some reports stating that he actually had the gender reassignment surgery, others that he did not. Regardless, he now identifies as a woman. He's in a female prison and has actually been involved in LGBT activist organizations from prison. So that's the story of the Aryan Republican Army, a.k.a. the ARA. Now switching back to Timothy McVeigh for the last few minutes of this week's show. We discussed last week McVeigh's various movements throughout the country. In the months leading up to the actual bombing, it's been found that McVeigh's movements pretty much mirrored certain members of the ARA throughout the country, but they also mirrored where they struck and hit a bank. McVeigh, although he would later deny ever being in Elm City, did brag to his sister about having been involved with a group of bank robbers. And at least according to one report, went so far as to ask this sister if she would launder money for them. That's important to note because after his arrest, McVeigh really tried to distance himself from the ARA and from having participated in any bank robberies. At some points, admitting to having participated in bank robberies, at other points, completely denying that he had had anything to do with them. Again, some have said that this is his way of creating uncertainty in the narrative. Others have said that McVeigh was trying to protect other individuals within the white power movement. And still further, some have stated that he was actually trying to protect his handlers within the federal government. At some point after this, McVeigh was staying with the Nichols family when the Nichols' son, Jason, suffocated on a with a plastic bag. From all accounts, this little boy's death pretty much destroyed McVeigh, with many people saying that he was extremely good with children, children liked McVeigh, and that the death of this little boy further pushed him into the abyss. A little over a month after the death of Jason Nichols, McVeigh purchased nitromethane at a hobby shop in Michigan. After traveling around again, in February of 94, McVeigh was once again in Kingman, Arizona. As had been the case previously, McVeigh would be in Kingman for an extended period of time, only leaving to go to various gun shows throughout the country. And while all of this is going on, McVeigh's mind is still seething what over what took place at Waco and Ruby Ridge, and the idea of perpetrating this bombing is still 
formulating, it is known that during these road trips, he would often be in areas where bank robberies took place that are either known to have or alleged to have been perpetrated by the ARA. Again, there are very conflicting stories about McVeigh during this period of time through the summer of 1994. We know he was in areas where bank robberies took place. Some individuals state that he had met with his handler at least once in Las Vegas and that this handler of his introduced him to a man who was prolific at building bombs. From this point onward in McVeigh's story, whenever he is seen, it's always going to be within the company of other individuals. And it is thought that leading up to September of 1994 is really when McVeigh made up his mind about doing the bombing. According to the federal government, McVeigh officially decided, along with Terry Nichols and quote-unquote others unknown, that the Murrah building was going to be their target and that they would be bombing it at some point during the coming year. It is known on that date, September, in September of 1994, that McVeigh was staying at a motel, which is just minutes from Elm. We are going to leave off the story here for this week. I know we're a few minutes short, but do not worry. There is going to be another episode coming out this week. I really want to try and get this series wrapped up before the new year so I can take a small break before launching into the next series. Next week, we're really going to talk about the build-up to the bombing itself. Hopefully I'll actually get to the bombing and quite possibly I will get into what happened after McVeigh was arrested. Alright, thank you for listening. Uh, remember, if you're interested in helping to support the show, go to your favorite podcast app, leave a five-star review, share the show on social media, consider becoming a Patreon member for just $2 a month at tinyurl.com backslash dcpatreon. Until next time, the Deathcast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing. Stay morbid!